Does anyone know what an ocean sunfish looks like? Well, they are pretty darn cool. Let me just tell you, they are basically a huge pizza turned on its side, swimming through the ocean with two big fins and pretty much no tail fin. So if you're intrigued, you may want to do a quick search on the internet if you can, or go to a library and see what an ocean sunfish looks like. They are very cool. You can't help but wonder how they got to be this shape. And Tierney will be filling in many of the details of their incredible natural history and what she's been learning through her research. I'd like to welcome Dr. Tierney Tees, a marine biologist and filmmaker who has been studying the ocean sunfish since 2000. After earning her undergraduate degree in biology from Brown University in Rhode Island, Tierney decided to dedicate her career to studying the ocean. She went on to earn a doctorate in biomechanics where she focused on the mechanics of swimming muscles in fish. In addition to publishing research and compiling a book on molas, Tierney is the science editor at Sea Studios Foundation, a documentary film company based in Monterey, California. Tierney was elected as a National Geographic Emerging Explorer in 2004 and nominated for a Pew Fellowship in Marine Conservation. She is a submersible pilot, a certified diver, and private land and sea pilot. I saw Tierney present a talk about six years ago and became completely curious as to the amazing natural history of the ocean sunfish. I'm thrilled to welcome Tierney to Ocean Currents. Welcome, Tierney. You're live on the air. Thank you, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to be with you. I love, love the other guests you've had on. It's a great show you've got going. Thank you. Well, I'm so thrilled. I've been so excited to have you on the show because the mola is my favorite fish. <laughs> and I think you share that with me. I think I think there's quite a few people in the world who would who would say that as well. Wonderful. So first, what's what attracted you to studying the ocean sunfish? Well, I think it's it's really it's it's odd shape and the way it presents itself. You know, you look at a tuna and you look at a shark, and they pretty much say what they're about. It it's written all over their body. They're about speed. They're about strength. They're about stamina streamlining and then you look at a mola and for you listeners who don't know what a mola looks like it's pretty much just like a great big swimming head with fins attached to it and it goes out into the open ocean and it doesn't really have a tail so to speak so you from if you're looking in terms of form and function it's a rather counterintuitive design for an open ocean vessel (laughs) so they, there are three species of molas, and that was something I had no idea about when I went to your talk. I, can you describe what these three species are? Are they all, all in the world's oceans, or do they um, vary geographically? Yeah, well, there are, there's, there's believed to be three species in the family of molidae, and the most common one and the one that we see the most of here on the California coast is the mola mola, and there's also the Masturus lanceolatus. And that looks like a mola mola, except it's got a little bit more of a nubbin on the end of its tail. Its skin is a little smoother, and it has some behavioral differences. Those two molas get to be very large. They get in the 1,000 pounds range. The mola mola is the world's heaviest bony fish, so it gets to be over 5,000 pounds. And the masteris is, is right close on its heels. The other species in the Molidae family is Ranzania lavis, and that's the slender mola, and it doesn't get to be more than about two feet. The mola, mola mola and the masteris get to be about, you know, upwards of 
they can be 10 feet long, but the, the Ranzania is quite small and, um, and a pretty speedy, speedy fish. And that one is located more tropically, whereas the other ones are more circumglobal. I see. And they do quite a bit of a weight increase from when they're in their small planktonic stages. How fast do they grow and what do they eat when they're that small? Well, those are all really good questions. It's, um, it's a difficult one to answer in terms of wild growth rates for molas because they're not a commercial fish. Um, so it's difficult to, to tag them, track them for a long period of time in the wild and then recapture them, which is how many of the growth, wild growth studies are done. We do know that they, from the hatching size of their little eggs, into the full adult form, they increase, They can increase in weight 60 million times. And now that puts the mole as the vertebrate growth champion of the world. <laughs> so that would be like, you know, if, if, if a human had a baby, that baby would grow up to weigh as much as six Titanic. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty amazing, amazing transformation. So they may not be the biggest or the... Uh fastest fish and be very obvious in what their role is, but they certainly have a growth championship to honor and a weight championship to honor. Yeah, yeah, and they, um, they, primarily their diet is believed to be jellyfish, and so they have to eat quite a lot of jellies to reach that, that large size, excuse me, um, because, you know, jellyfish are pretty much mostly water. And 100 grams of moon jelly, I think, equals about four kilo, um, four calories. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So that's a lot, lot, a lot of jellies. It's a lot of jellies to, to put on that kind of bulk. We do know captive growth studies that they are capable of growing very fast when given a rich diet. And there was one mola in the Monterey Bay Aquarium that put, out, put on around 800 pounds in a little more than 14 <laughs> months. I was just recently at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and I have to say the mole there is looking a little chunky. <laughs> he- yeah. <laughs> well, that, that mola, <clears throat> bless its heart, has, um, has been a great display animal. It's, it's really taken well to the tank. Um, and I think uh, they've certainly decreased the, the diet, um, the caloric intake of that mola, and it's it's only getting around 0.5% of its body weight, and it's, it's getting quite a, um, quite a lean diet, <laughs> despite its, its um, rather bulky appearance. <laughs> um, and it has, it has lost some weight. I think it were, was perhaps eating a little, a little too high on the hog <laughs> in, the, in, in its first months in captivity. Um, so it has lost a little weight, but it's still got that curious roll around its dorsal fin, and so... Um, we're going to be looking into that and seeing if it's, if that's all fat or, or if there's something else going on up there. Wow, it's fascinating. Yeah. So um, when they're younger, they school together. Is that an advantage for um, just because they're not very fast, they're kind of slow? Is this a, an advantage for maybe um, safety in numbers? Well, schooling is, has been really a survival tactic for so many fishes. And... Um, that the schooling activity provides a, a disruptive front for a predator. So uh, there is that, of course, the safety in numbers. And, and molas, when they're little, are quite speedy. They're, they're, no, um, they're certainly nothing that you could keep up with swimming. So they school until they're about pizza pie size. 
and um, a little bigger than that, they start to, be, to become loners, and they stop schooling. So, in truth, in today's sort of assaulted seas, when it comes to fisheries and first staining and drift nets and all these things, schooling is actually um, doesn't work to a fish's advantage now because it makes, it makes large numbers of them an easy target. Mm-hmm. So by being non-schooling, it's, I, I think it's one of its features for being a fish of the future. Interesting. So they're, it's, um, uh, they're not a commercial species in the United States, but they are internationally. Is it in Japan they are? Well, in Japan, they're, they're, they're caught opportunistically in set nets that line the, the coastline of, of Japan, as well as in Taiwan. And certainly if they're caught in nets in other Asian countries like the Philippines and, and China, they, they are eaten. But it's a difficult species to target. Um, because of its non-schooling behavior. Interesting. So back, back to their behavior a little bit. Um, we call them the ocean sunfish, and of course, um, when we're on the surface of the water, we have the most likely chance to see them. Do they spend most of their time at the surface, or do we know how much time they spend at the surface, and what are they doing up there versus spending some time at depth? Yeah, well, it's interesting because they they are one of these unique fishes that, that just present themselves to the public. You know, this enticing little way of showing them, showing their <clears throat> their whole body and then for extended periods of time and then disappearing. And that, that behavior has led to their common name of sunfish, but it's also led people to believe that they're, all, they're often sick. <laughs> and this is a, a distressful um, behavior, a, a behavior showing that they're, they're somehow afflicted with some disease. But we've found, we've been satellite tagging the mola, and we found that this is a totally normal part of their behavioral repertoire. When we see them on the surface, they're actually, that is um, surface bouts punctuated by multiple dives to depth that occur during the entire, all daylight hours. So as soon as the sun comes up, the mola starts bounce diving up and down and up and down to depth over 300 meters, and we even have them going down to 600 meters. And in some, some regions, um, a group in UNH has been tagging, and they've got them down to 800 meters. So they're able to, to um, bounce dive to quite, um, quite deep and then come up, and we feel we think that what they're doing is, um, of, is warming up. You know, the, the ba- that basking area is... They expose their large sides to the sun, and that acts as a solar panel. And um, it also helps warm their their um, their tummies so that they can digest their food faster. You know, with every 10 degrees increase, you speed up your enzymes twice. And um, and so they it, it's both. It's probably we think that has something to do with it that they're warming up from from diving multiple multiple dives to to um, feeding areas. That's amazing. I had no idea they went that deep. Are they feeding at that depth? Well, we think that's, that's what would merit that energetic expenditure. We mm-hmm. think that they're, they're targeting what we call the deep scattering layer, and the animals that live in the deep scattering layer are it's a multitude of, of sundry critters from squid to, to fish to crustaceans to mollusks. It's a whole, a whole diversity of animals that live there. So we think that... Um, that that could be one region that they're targeting for you know <clears throat> for high high protein high 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 calorie payback. Oh, I see. Interesting. More more uh, calories down below, so worth the energy to get down there. 
Presumably, yeah. Interesting. Well, those just tuning in, you're listening to Ocean Currents, and I'm talking with uh, Tierney Tees, a marine biologist who studies ocean sunfish, also known as the Mola Mola. Um, so another thing that's interesting is many people I've heard say, and I, I never knew this for fact, and I haven't seen it in, for fact, that when they're up at the surface that it's also a symbiotic relationship for gulls or birds at the surface that might pick off parasites off them. Is there truth to that? Well, there is. There is. I mean, it's a mixed. It's a mixed blessing what the birds do with the mola. Oh, um, <laughs> I don't know if I want to know. Well, certainly, anyone who's spent time on the ocean, they know that flotsam, stuff floating on the surface of the ocean, tends to attract other little little fish and little critters underneath it. And by the with the mola um, floating on the on the surface of the of the water, it can attract little cleaner fish underneath it. Often you'll You'll, if you swim up to a mola and, um, and peek under it, you'll find little cleaner fish. And molas are really a smorgasbord for parasites. Um, even their parasites have parasites. <laughs> so, so they, they can, um, little fish can, can take advantage of that. And from, from the air, birds can see um, parasites on the mola. And often when you find molas, you'll find them in association with, with California gulls or western gulls. And, and yes, we have seen them picking, picking shaggy copepod parasites off the skin of the mola and the mola um, tolerating that. But, you know, if given a chance, a seagull will, will just, you know, poke the eye out of a mola as well. Oh. So, so it's, you know, you have to be careful when you're dealing with seagulls. They'll, they'll, they'll go for what they can get. That's right. <laughs> I've seen a couple molas that um, had some parts of their fins bitten off. What are some other animals that might be attracted to molas for food? Yeah, well, they certainly, they certainly get beat up around um, Monterey in certain times of the year because the sea lions, the California sea lions, find that the small molas make really great frisbees. <laughs> especially if they can rip their fins off and Aww. fasten them into that ultimate fishy disc, and they will slap them along the surface of the water. And, yeah, it's so, so you can often see this during the pelagic period here in Monterey, you know, about October, November, September, October. Um, the little ones come in and the sea lions play with them, and then that pretty much renders all their locomotor force useful, useless. Wow. So sea lions are certainly a, a big predator. Orcas are a predator as well. They, um, we've seen orcas um, going after them in the Galapagos and using them sort of as a play toy to, to possibly train their youngsters. And, um, and we also have um, molas make up an enormous portion of the bycatch in the, in the broadbill sword net drift, fish, drift net fishery here in California. They're a large portion of the bycatch of the horse mackerel fishery off South Africa and also drift net fisheries in the Mediterranean. So those are some big, big factors in their mortality. So is there um, declines in mullet populations? Do we have an assessment of that? We know that some fisheries are suffering in their large populations, but since mullets aren't necessarily targeted here in the U.S., but they're suffering as bycatch, do you think that they're potentially at threat for declining? That's a, that's a really good question, and it's a difficult one to get because we don't have global baseline population numbers on molas. It's something that we're working towards. 
but we can get some insight into that by looking into genetics and into specifically we're looking at nuclear DNA. Um, I'm working with Steve Carl, who's at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. We've had a partnership going since 2000 exploring the, the genetics of molas. And, and before I go into the microsatellite data, um, we think that we might have two new species as well. Wow. So, which would be exciting. You know, you get new species of beetle on a regular basis, but how often do you get two new species of fish that, that weigh over 5,000 pounds? That is so cool. <laughs> or can weigh over 5,000 pounds. That's the world record. But I'm um, getting back to the, the way that the genetics work is there's portions of DNA that are high, highly variable. Um, we call these microsatellites. And depending on how much, um, and, and those portions are specific to individuals. So you can essentially get a genetic profile of an individual using these sections of variable DNA. And looking at the variability of within a population, you can get a, an assessment of how active is their breeding. So if the population has decreased in size, hence, you know, the decreased breeding activity, then that would lead you to believe, then, then you'd see decreased variation in these variable um, areas of DNA, and that then you could, you know, that would lead you to the hypothesis that fishy, fisheries or bycatch is, is definitely impacting the population. And so we've looked at microsatellites, and it, there are hints that the population has decreased in recent years. Hmm. Do you think that um, they're more affected here in U.S. Drill, um, drift cat, drift net fisheries, or is it more so overseas? Oh, all, all really good questions, and we just don't have enough data to say yay or nay. Mm -hmm. You know, everything right now with our MOLA work is in the realm of small, small N numbers. <laughs> um, and we need, especially with the genetics, you need, you need lots of samples to have any sort of statistical power. Interesting. So we're still in the preliminary data stages. Wow, so there's a lot more to learn about MOLAs. How about um, the shape? Going back to the shape of them, is there... You know, they're a unique niche for them in the ocean. They obviously are eating jellies, which are a very abundant sort of predator in the ocean of plankton. So it could, is it fair to say that, you know, it, it seems like jellies respond to excessive nutrients in the water and there's excessive jellies. And would molas respond that quickly in the food web if there's this excessive amount of jellies for molas to reproduce really well? Well, those are, those are all really, really good questions. We're, we're certainly looking... At molas as a potential harbinger for global sea change, and and as as you say that we're with with increased fishing and with increased pollutants and increased warming, we're making the seas more hospitable for low energy, highly re fast reproducing organisms like jellyfish. So as we get seas more and more replete with jellies, then one would think that the the animals that eat jellies would would um thrive in that type of environment. Um, that we don't have enough we don't have enough, you know, data right now to, to get at if that's actually occurring, but but with um with bycatch and other factors affecting the mola population, they might not have the opportunity to rise to that um, banquet of jellies that are being presented. <laughs> mm -hmm. How often do they reproduce? Do, do we know that? Well, we know that they broadcast bonds, so the males and the females must come together. And um, they're actually in the Guinness World Book of Records again um, <laughs> for, for having the most number of eggs in a single vertebrate female, 300 million. 
Wow, three hundred million. We're estimated in a four-foot single ovaried female. So, so that's orders of magnitude more than any other fish. So, we think there must be high infant mortality. Otherwise, you'd be able to walk off. You know, walk from here to Hawaii on molas. Seriously, do you th- are there more eggs with older females like rockfish? They successfully um, reproduce better as they get older. Or? Well, you, that that seems to be certainly a um, a pattern that we see in in fishes. We don't have enough. Um, we haven't actually um, haven't actually had enough gravid females to to say yay or nay. But that's certainly. You know, that would certainly be the the, the hypothesis. Mm-hmm. The larger you get, the more resources you can put into egg production. And if you're looking at a four-foot female who, who, who can make 300 million, and these mullahs get to be over 10 feet, then that's a sizable number of eggs in those ovaries. Yeah, someone's eating them. So when broadcast spawning happens, there's males and the females, and they come together, and they and they spawn, and then some of these things that some of these get together and become larvae. And some of the pictures I've seen um, on your website specifically, oceansunfish.org, show their larval stage to be really spiky, almost like a crab larvae. Mm. What is um, some of the origins of that? And it's so interesting that they're so spiky and they almost look like an urchin in the middle of the water. Yeah. What What are some of the um, evolutionary some of that evolutionary background on the the larvae? Yeah, well, the larvae actually gives um, a lot of insight into why the mola is shaped the way it is, where this funny shape comes from. Um, the mola gives away, that, that larvae gives away that the mola comes ancestrally, evolutionarily. It comes from and is related to porcupine fish and puffer fish. So, um, so back when molas appear in the fossil record around 55 million years ago, back when whales still had legs, and um, and those it, they come from coral uh, um, coral reef fish that really their body form selected for armor and maneuverability and stiff body a stiff body design tank design as opposed to like a streamlined tuna design. So from that body shape um, and that porcupine fish, you know, with the spikes all over it, armored. Um, from that, they they then um, evolved into more as streamlined as they can be, given that that bloodline. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I, have you ever seen a mole? One, one thing that's always fascinating to me is I've seen the picture of the larvae, the larval form. I've seen juvenile molas about the size of the pizza pie, and and I've ne- I've seen a couple big ones, but not quite as big as you describe. Have you ever seen any in between? The, the smallest larval stage and, and maybe dinner size plate. I've, I'm wondering what they look like in their smaller stages. Just smaller molas? Or? Um, well, they actually seem to have a little bit of a tail after they go, after they start to resorb those spines. Um, it seems, it sort of appears like they have a little tail, but then as they metamorphose through that larval stage, the, the fin rays of their dorsal and anal fins migrate back. So they don't really, as an adult, have any true tail. They fuse their backbone. They migrate their side fins, you know, the dorsal and, mm-hmm. and anal fin, back to form this sort of rudder-like thing called a clavis. And and that's, that's their tail. They don't have any other tail. So, so cool. Yeah. 
So this is a pretty common fish on the West Coast. Um, how do we, do you know how we, they uh, use the California current? Are there certain areas on the West Coast here that uh, molds are more abundant than others? Do they concentrate in any specific areas? Well, we, um, we tend to see them in, in certain periods of time. Certain, I mean, we've had sighting, we have sightings of molas year-round in, in Monterey, but you'll, you'll certainly see larger numbers of them in, um, in the late summer and the fall. In, when we tag down in, um, in San Diego, we, usually, we always tag in the summer because that, that's when we see the greatest numbers. From our results, satellite tagging, and we don't, we don't have that many. We only have um, about 14 animals that we've tagged. Um, we see that they make a southerly migration from, from San Diego down towards Baja off of, you know, getting no farther south than about Cedros Island mm-hmm. and then, and then um, start coming back. So, so um, they're, they're using that whole, that whole area but how um, the, the details of that we're still working out. Have you ever done any tagging from up north, or does it seem to happen from Monterey and San Diego area? Oh, the Monterey tagging is on the docket for this year. So we'll be putting out um, at least four tags this year in Monterey. Very cool. Well, you know, we're just getting about to the halfway through the show, so let's talk a little bit more about the tagging and some of the research you've been doing recently in the next half hour. Okay. Um, We're going to take a quick break, so please stay on the line, Tierney. Okay. listening to Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and tonight we're talking with Tierney Tees, an ocean sunfish specialist, marine biologist based out of Monterey. And we've been hearing a little bit about some of the fascinating natural history about this very oddly shaped but adorable fish that gets quite heavy. And Tierney, um, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. Happy to be here. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the research you're starting out of Monterey. You've been tagging for a while. Can you just give us a little bit of background on um, what you're trying to learn from tagging ocean sunfish? Yeah, yeah. First, I, I preface that it's totally a collaborative effort. I have, I work. We have a great team together. Um, I work with a, and, and depending on where I'm tagging, I I work with lots of, of different people in. In California, it's with the Monterey Bay Aquarium, John Sullivan and Chuck Farwell, and also with Heidi Dewar have been instrumental in the tagging of these animals. And then in, in different parts, I've tagged over in South Africa with the Two Oceans Aquarium, in Bali with Bali High Divers, and um, in Taiwan with the Taiwanese Fisheries Research Institute, and in Japan with Kamigawa SeaWorld. So um, worked with a lot of different people, and that's been one, one really fun aspect. Pretty much, in terms of the questions we're asking, well, it was a, just a blank slate when we started. We had no idea. The molas, they just present themselves on the surface. We had no idea what a day in the life of a mola was really like. <laughs> and um, where they, you know, where are they migrating to? How are they, how does, what's their temperature tolerance? Are they following plankton blooms? Are they, do you find them in association with fronts? Do you, um, you know what? What are the environmental parameters that 
inspire or negate molar movement. <laughs> and um, we're just now starting to put the pieces of that puzzle together, but some of the really, really interesting things that I mentioned earlier in the show is this bounce diving to, to depth. Mm-hmm. And in those, when, they, when they're foraging, they can be foraging in temperatures to 1.8 degrees C. So it's, it is really, I mean, zero degrees C is freezing. So they, they can, you know, bounce dive to very cold temperatures and then come right back up to 20 degrees C. So that's an amazing thermal tolerance in one dive. And to do that repeatedly is really pretty remarkable. So that's another, another thing that we've, we've discovered from them. With these dives that they do, is there, that's an incredible buoyancy management um, adaptation to deal with. Do they have an air bladder, or how do they get themselves down there and then get themselves back up? Yeah, they don't have a swim bladder, so that makes things a little easier. Um, and they are negatively buoyant, so they can pretty much, um, they do, they, um, they swim down and then they swim up. But mm-hmm. swimming down is certainly a lot easier. Okay. So. so you're talking about the bounce dives, and the tags are starting to help put those pictures together of understanding this incredible tolerance down to 1.8 degrees Celsius. And then how about some spatially, geographically um, stories that they might tell with the tags? Well, we're starting to see that they're, you know, they, they have a, a, home, a home territory, um, and that's important. You know, if you were com- to compare them to sort of the Olympian migrators, the bluefin tuna or leatherback sea turtles or something like that, they, the molas are not transoceanic migrators. Mm-hmm. They, um, they'll stick to a discrete region of a coastline and migrate north and south. It's, and, and I just have to preface all this with, you know, this is based on very few numbers, so, mm-hmm. um, individuals, so... So it's all very preliminary, but it does look like they have not not a very ex- extensive migratory range, but certainly a north-south pattern, and that's that's very important because if there is a lot of fishing pressure in in these regions where the populations are, are located, there's some um, they run the risk of that whole population being extirpated mm-hmm. um, because it's not you know you're not having a lot of influx from from other regions. So, so what we're finding with the with the genetics as well is that there are discrete mola populations. Um, they they could be you know even on the order of being new species, but just even within the within the umbrella of mola mola, you have discrete genetic populations, and 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 that lends you know that that lends um, resilience to the species as a whole. So if you have heavy fishing pressure in one area, you could just ice out that entire population. That's amazing that's to think about that. And that's, you know, they're the strong adaptation for um, reproducing a lot. They have a lot of eggs, so they're very successful there. But then they could be completely wiped out as a population um, regionally around the world. Mm-hmm. That's, inter- that's amazing. And to think about how the genetics have um, shared over time, it's, it makes me think about some of the um, humpback whale studies being done in the eastern pacific here of sharing um, the genetic studies between what's ha- what species which whales are over in hawaii and which whales are going to alaska versus which ones go to um the the california mexico route and and yeah. sharing of that in between it's interesting to think about the molas sharing their genetics as well 
Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just such a treasure trove to have this evolutionary history um, retained within every cell. It's it's <laughs> it's a scientist's dream to have that available for for exploration. <laughs> and it sounds like there's a lot of collaborators internationally that have that similar question. Yeah, yeah. What have been some of the um, different methods for tagging molas? You mentioned that you're tagging um, in a couple different areas of the world, and um, what's it like to some of the challenges you might face in these different areas? Yeah. Um, every, every different country has, presents different challenges. Here in California, we use a spotter pilot. Because you can't see molas from the surface, they, they're these glinting white disks on the surface. A spotter pilot helps vector us to the mola, and we sneak up on it and um, get a large salmon net and put it over its head and then stabilize it and put the tag in. The tag it's about the size, or um, about four inches long, like a small little um, tube-shaped implement, and we, we pu- it has a dart on it. We push that into the animal. Um, and that's how we do it in, in California. In Africa, we don't have a spotter pilot. We just drive around the surface of the, <laughs> of the ocean and look for the fish, and and it's worked. You know, the times that we've tagged over there, we, we happen to find these big animals. We don't even use a net. We just um, have a, a host of divers that we we um, they jump off the zodiac, circle the fish, and and hold on, <laughs> <laughs> being well, being respectful and, and as gentle as we can be, and getting the tag in as quickly and painlessly as possible. How hard is it to stabilize a mola in the water? Oh, it all depends on the mola. Molas are very, um, you know, they have individual personalities. Some some just quiet right down. Others won't have anything to do with you. Um, <laughs> So it all it all depends, um, but but yeah, you have to sort of position them a little bit against the side of the boat and hold their fin and, and to get the tag in. Mm-hmm. But we put it in an area where we don't think there's a tremendous amount of nerves. So um, and we we did tests on on mola captive molas as to the best tag tag area, which would be the least invasive. So we try to really minimize the the, the impact on them. Mm-hmm. In in Japan. We we really have to work. We get to work very t- um, closely with the fishermen, and we go out to the set nets with them, and they hoist up the the fish out of the set nets. We put them on a pallet, we tag them, put them in a live well, and then we have to motor them as far away from those nets as we can, mm. so they're not recaptured. Every one of these tags costs thirty five hundred dollars. So and then another five hundred for satellite time. So that's a four thousand dollar investment when you tag one of these fish. Mm-hmm. So you don't want it just coming right back into the net. You want it to have a little bit of a travel log. So that's interesting because it seems like the nets are probably set where there's they're targeting fish, yeah. which are probably attracting prey of some sort in that area. And hopefully, I mean, it must be hard to go find out another area where there might be, that might be attractive to a mole to stick around for a while and not drift back to that area where they were. Yeah, well, so far we've had good luck in, in getting them, you know, like in Japan, where we've, we've done a lot of, most of the, the um, working with the fishermen, we motored them out into the Kurashio current, and then, and then they, um, they sort of put their mind elsewhere. <laughs> wow, it's like a second chance for them. Oh, yeah, I think, I think that's a big sigh of relief on the mola. The lucky mola. Yeah, and in Indonesia, the molas don't really bask to the same degree as, as we see them here. So we, we've um, tagged them at depth with a modified spear gun. Wow. Yeah. Why do you think they don't, don't spend as much time on the surface over there? 
Well, it might have to do with water temperatures. Mm. It's a lot warmer over there, mm-hmm. and we find them in upwelling, cold, cold water upwelling regions, but um, by and large, the thermoclines will be deeper over there, so mm-hmm. they, can, um, they don't have to come right up to the surface to get as warm as possible. Now, these tags that you're using, these are the type that pop off after a certain amount of time, and so you have to f- retrieve them? Well, if we retrieve them, we get more data. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of this methodology, which has really revolutionized um, tagging open ocean animals, is that you don't have to get the tag back. It um, pops off the animal at a pre-recorded time. So we typically tag about six to six to nine months. We, we use that, that window because anything more than that, the tag might have little encrusting organisms on it. Mm-hmm. And if it gets too many of those, then when it pops off, it'll have trouble transmitting properly. Mm. So um, it's a you know, it's a mixture of, of of factors that we're we're playing with. So we typically program the tag to pop off after six or nine months, and then it uploads its data as much as it can before its battery dies. And typically, we get well that data is. Um, so when it's transmitted up to satellite, it's compressed into histograms, and so we don't get all the data, and we get a compressed data set. But if we get the tag back, we can get all the data. So is there, uh, like, some type of GPS thing that goes off? It says, I'm here, I'm on the surface. Yeah, yeah. It, um, it, it, it actually works off light levels. Um, so it, you have a, um, an accurate clock, and you have a... Um, you have a light meter on the tag, and from from those two, you can determine time of day and length of midday, and you can then you can get your um your position that way. So and then, but then when it's when it's transmitting, it transmits its position up to satellite, and we and we get that its position when it's transmitting, we'll get that um, very accurately from the Argos satellite system, mm-hmm. and then where the animal has actually been, that is calculated um, from light levels um, in, from, in the tag. That's interesting. It's kind of reverse the way you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've learned a little bit of, in regards to their potential north-south movement on the California coast with the limited amount of animals you've been able to work with and learned a little bit about their the, the bounce diving technique through the tags. How much do you think? How much longer are you going to be tagging for as you are trying to unravel some of these answers? And do you think your questions will evolve a little bit? Well, um, we'd love to see what interspecies, um, you know, multi-species react uh, interactions there they are happening. Um, you know, how do, how do the the dive profiles of leatherback sea turtles compare to molas since they're both one of they're both big jellyfish eaters? Um. We don't really have enough animals to know how the molas, you know, what is their big overall pattern for the whole California coast because we've only got data from molas from sort of the Channel Islands down. So we don't know anything about what's going on with molas from, from the Channel Islands up north, mm-hmm. although we do, we do have sightings of them as far north as Alaska. Um, so, so it's, you know, getting that global picture of of what's their seasonality what how are they using the ocean how how will a changing ocean affect their migration route and where their where are their spawning areas we have just glimpses of of um larvae that's been collected in plankton toads 
Oh, but we've really, wow. No one's ever seen them spawning in the wild. So um, that's a big mystery. We don't know where they're spawning, and that's a huge, you know, we if we're to protect the species, we'd, it'd be great to know when they're spawning and where they're spawning. Mm-hmm. We just have glimpses of that right now. So would more visual observations from um, other folks on the ocean up north where maybe that you're not um, able to get because there's only so many people that can be watching, but is there a role for the public or those spending time out on the ocean? Oh, absolutely, and and I'm so glad you brought that up because the, the MOLA presents this real unique opportunity for the public to participate in, in the research to unravel the mystery of this magnificent fish. Um, I've got, I have a, a sighting form on my website that I'm in the midst of updating that's going to be much more interactive and easier and um, filtered and provide um, a more rigorous database for people to, to put their sightings in. When they see an animal, um, it'll, it'll allow an easy template for people to fill out and upload either pictures or stories or um, their Latin longs so that and, and, you know, I've, I've had this, this site, sort of a nominal site going for several years, and I've gotten, I've gotten sightings from all over the world, every religious denomination, every, <laughs> you know, from, from Norway to Tanzania, from rabbis to, to, to nuns to, um, you know, school kids to senior citizens, all writing it into the website, you know, with their shared love of the sunfish. And when the world seems to be in a somewhat um, sad state of affairs when it comes to global cooperation. <laughs> it's really been a, a real ray of hope in, in my life to be able to log on and see, you know, from all different nations, people interested in the ocean, loving the sunfish, and wanting to help the scientific process. That's great. Do you have a, do you think you'll be, um, I'm just thinking of how to get the word out about that, because I just happened to trip upon it when I was on your website, and I'm wondering if, um, are you planning to get the word out at marinas up and down the coast as far as, or, I mean, that would just be California. It seems that we could probably help you with that up here at the sanctuary of getting fishermen and folks spending time on the ocean to be aware of that. Because I think a lot of folks that are out there are completely intrigued by that animal and be like, wow, I remember I saw a sunfish today. Yeah. I'm going to call out Tierney Tees <laughs> and let them know there's a mole out here. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's... It, it would be great, and so we're redesigning the site right now, um, and we'll we'll probably be ready to to launch the new one. I I think in a in a month and a half. But I'm I'm working with the Monterey Bay Aquarium to see if this is um, something we can partner on because I think it could be um, a, not only a tremendous community resource but a global resource, um, not only for individuals and sport fishermen and recreational people um, fishing and and ocean going but also for, you know, the sanctuary that does aerial surveys, for whale-watching boats that keep records. It, it really could be a repository for a lot of, a lot of data. So. I can see it as a great resource for educators as well, having students be able to track them around the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we're starting a little Adopt-A-Mola Foundation, too. So, so you know, <laughs> stay tuned. You know, keep looking at the website because we'll have some, some um, updates. That's great. So um, um, I'll mention that uh, I haven't, we haven't said Tierney's website. It's oceansunfish.org. And for those of you that want to learn more about the mola, Tierney has a great site with references 
um, of other other papers and other collaborators, a, a little bit more background on the project here, and sounds like it's getting upgraded, so maybe check it out now and come back in another month or so. Yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll, it's, we're we're going to overhaul overhaul the site. But um, the other good thing about the site is that it, it pays homage to, the, to, to my funders, you know, National Geographic and Microsoft and Monterey Bay Aquarium, and I have, I've been very fortunate to have, to have some great funders. Well, I think it's rather strategic to have a very cool animal. It seems like it would generate a lot of interest that way. So yeah, that's pretty neat. Um, are there any other things you'd like to share about ocean sunfish and your research? Um, well, just that I, I, I appreciate all the people who've shared their, their thoughts on the sunfish. And I think it's, I think it's so important for, for people to, to spend time at the ocean and to have their kids spend time at the ocean and to keep keep the ocean in the in the front of their consciousness. Um, I think it's we're at a challenging point with protecting the world ocean right now, and we need to we need to keep we need to not back burner it. We need to keep it in our consciousness. Is there one thing that you'd like to let listeners know about their personal role in protect taking care of the ocean? Well, I think. Um, I think there's actually kind of three things. <laughs> I'll take three. That sounds good. Um, you know, we as individuals and American citizens, um, collectively and as a whole, have tremendous power. Our, our vote has a lot of power, so making sure we do our research for which candidates have ocean conservation um, on their ticket is, is vital. Um, our spending power. You know, Americans spend $50 billion a year on seafood. And so the consumer choices we make at the market have huge impact, $50 mm-hmm. billion a year. And so making sure we know what are the right fishes to buy with, through the Marine Stewardship Council um, program or seafoodchoice.org, you know, we should demand from our vendors to have sustainable seafood to buy. And Americans, the one thing I'm really, I'm really so proud of is that American generosity far outweighs other nations. We as individuals give away $200 billion a year. And less than 4% of that is for the environment and for animals. So I think our generosity is something really to champion and to bolster. Um, and I think we can, I think we can bolster in this, this arena. You know, Thomas Friedman said that green is the new red, white, and blue. And I think that we should make that ring true. That's wonderful. I think I agree. I think it's a new trend, and people are starting to pay attention as are they're being affected by um, interesting weather patterns that may not have been quite as normal in the last few years. And there's a lot of hype right now about what's going on on, on our planet. So I hope more attention does go to that. Yes, yes, and I think I think there is a movement afoot. It's certainly an exciting, and it's a vital time to be interested and in the oceans. So, yeah. Tierney, thank you so much for sharing some of your information. I know we just kind of tipped the surface of molas and ocean sunfish. I really, really appreciate your time and sharing this wonderful information with us. Oh, my pleasure, Jennifer. It was great talking to you. I wanted to mention also to listeners that um, if you look up on the National Geographic website, Tierney has been an emerging explorer in the past and has um, many activities for students and teachers up there and, and some neat videos about her work with the sunfish and as a marine biologist. So 
um, nationalgeographic.com and, and research Tierney. Thanks again, Tierney, and we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you, Jennifer. Take care. Bye-bye. So earlier we were talking with Tierney Tees studying ocean sunfish, a fascinating animal. And I think that we sometimes talk about some heavier research or larger oceanographic processes, but sometimes it's just neat to be fascinated and have curiosity. And it drives us to learn more and be um, more curious about the world. And for me, the sunfish has been one of those animals, and for someone else it could be something completely different. But whatever it is, find out find out what it is and, and learn a little bit more about it because I think it helps to inspire us to become better stewards of where we live. So thank you very much for tuning in again, and thanks for supporting KWMR and Ocean Currents. Good night. Thanks for tuning in to Ocean Currents. This show is produced in collaboration with KWMR, Community Radio for West Marin in California, and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, a division of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Opinions expressed on this show by the guests may or might not be the same as the sanctuaries. The show is meant to be educational in nature. For more information about the sanctuary program, visit sanctuaries.noaa.gov